When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Bruce Pavitt, founder of Sub Pop Records, and you're listening to Whatever Nevermind. I've been recording the whole time. We haven't started anything official, so I'll just uh, I'll welcome to the program uh, Bruce Pavitt. I got you. Uh, you asked how to pronounce my name. Pr- Bruce Pavitt is the correct pronunciation, right? That is the correct pronunciation. Thank you so much. It'd be it'd be I awesome if I it'd, it'd be awesome if I mispronounced the word Bruce. So yes, um, but yeah, you're the founder of Sub Pop Records, which is the main reason I have you on here. Uh, you, of course, were there for a lot of really key points in in, in the Seattle music scene that changed a lot of things. You know, basically at the start of the 90s. And uh, so, being that I consider you an expert, that's why you are here on the show. <laughs> well, well, thanks so much. I'll try and uh, pull out some old memories. All right. Well, that's what we're here for. Let's, let's see how old we can go here. What, uh, uh, growing up, what, what kind of got you into music? What were, was there a certain band that gra- you gravitated towards, or w- was there a path you were le- leaning towards? Well, uh, I did love listening to radio when I was a kid. Uh, I was born in 1959 in the Chicago area. I remember seeing music on the Ed Sullivan Show. One group I bought a lot of singles by was uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Nice. And I remember the first time the first time I saw Nirvana play, uh, he reminded me quite a bit of John Fogerty. I then later learned that uh, he actually formed a Credence cover band early early in the day back in Aberdeen. But I've always been a musical omnivore. I love all kinds of music. And what what was exciting about Seattle in the in the mid '80s is the live shows were were off the chain. Uh, Green River was incredible. In particular, You Men, etc. A lot of the bands on that list I got to see live, and and they were just great. And I was able to see them in a room with 50, 100, 200 people. Yeah, I mean, and, and that makes a big difference, I think, especially the fact that you got to see them early. Absolutely. Now, well, uh, when did you move to Seattle? Then you, you mentioned uh, you, you were kind of from the Midwest to begin with. Yeah, well, uh, when I was a teen, I was going into uh, Wax Tracks Records in Chicago, got really into punk new wave that was happening in the late 70s i moved to olympia in 79 started a radio show at a college there evergreen state college 
And that was kind of the roots of my fanzine where I was reviewing a lot of indie underground music from around the country. I moved to Seattle in 1983 and I wound up opening an indie punk record store in, on Capitol Hill called Fallout. In 1984, I was doing a column called Sub Pop USA in the Rocket. I was DJing local clubs. Bands were crashing on my couch. So, yeah, I, I'd say it was a ground zero for indie punk alternative scene in Seattle at that time. Right on. Um I've, I'm getting ready for this. You know, I, I had to go back and kind of bone up some old interviews with you and uh, see a couple of different discussions on the whole thing. I, I feel like the the fanzine thing kind of gets glossed over quickly into the record label deal. Explain that to me, because it sounds like what you're talking about is you were actually like hand drawing and and making like uh, physical copies to to distribute. Yeah, so I was making. Uh, I was offset printing zines that started in 1980 and the the zines are compiled in a book people could get called sub pop usa but that zine was reviewing records that nobody else was talking about okay and what i realized is every city in america had a band had a scene had some bands had records coming out but you couldn't read about most of these bands. You couldn't find their records. You didn't know where they were. So I was reviewing a lot of very obscure records, uh, especially in from Chicago and Seattle, reviewing them and giving them, and then giving addresses so people could order the records. So I was a I was a Uber uh, record indie nerd. Uh, starting in 1980 and i was basically framing the culture as indie rock before that was really a phrase i was reviewing independent rock okay mm -hmm. so that covered a that covered a wide spectrum of sounds and styles i was just kind of into everything but i was always really fascinated with local scenes and what would make local scenes happen you know and that's always been my fascination and then as seattle really got a vibe going i was like damn this is this is incredible i want to just start focusing my attention on seattle i've been kind of reviewing what's going on in the states for a while but seattle is so hot right now i'm just going to put all my energy into seattle and we're talking still 1980 or is this a little later or I, i'm sorry uh Again, I moved to Seattle in 84, doing the column that's still reviewing. Oh, so uh, once you're in Seattle, that's stuff. when you kind of shifted. Okay, I got you. A little, little, little bit, a little bit. Uh, the scene really started to coalesce, I think, around 86, 87. Of course, Sub Pop opened its doors in 1988. The first Seattle-based Sub Pop record was Green River Dry as a Bone. That came out in 87. Soundgarden Screaming Life came out in 87. So I was, I was really deep into it. Uh, I would say 1987 and then 88 is when Mudhoney and Nirvana started putting out records on Sub Pop. So that's that's the general uh, chronology there. So like from a distance and by, I mean, someone who kind of, uh, I was uh, freshman in college when Nirvana uh, Nevermind came out. So the, just to give you the time fr frame of what I'm talking about. From a distance, it seems like uh, this was the scene was almost like a, a large hangout. You know, like you guys all kind of coalesced together a lot. Uh, it seemed like you brought each other up a lot in conversations, even after some of these bands made it big. Is, is that an accurate way to describe it? I mean, you're all yes. sleeping on each other's couches and bumming cigarettes from each other. Yeah, I would say yeah. That that was the beauty of it. It was just it was a small team, small town, small scene. Bands would just go out and support each other. 
And uh, every week you just go out and see uh, another band. I was, again, I was reviewing records. I had a radio show. I was, I was playing this stuff. So I was kind of a super fan. Uh, I was good friends with Mark Arm from Green River, who later morphed into Mud Honey. I was good friends with Charles Peterson, the photographer who documented a lot of it. And it was just a, a fun, exciting community of people who are very supportive. And that's what made it cool. Now, one of the things we did at Sub Pop, I'll say, is we used a lot of Charles's photos. They were all live. A lot of those photos showed images of like, let's say, Mud Honey playing in a small club. You'd see the band, you'd see the fans. And my feeling was people around the country, if they picked up like a copy of Mud Honey's first album, called Mud Honey, you, you flip over the back and you see a picture of Mud Honey hanging out, playing live half half off the stage, uh, hanging hanging with the crowd there. There was this intimacy and immediacy and anybody picking up their record just go, damn, these bands are just playing in small clubs. I mean, if I moved to Seattle, I could be one of these people in this photo right here. I could just go to a bar and bump into Mark Arm or Eddie Better, and that was true. And that's what made what was going on so ex exciting for people is it, it appeared to be and was accessible and inclusive. Right on. Um, the, where does the Nirvana love buzz, big cheese release come in then? Was that, that there was a 45 club. I think we may, I may have missed there that, uh, yes. Well, uh, Nirvana, <clears throat> the love buzz, big cheese single, uh, came out in late November of 89 and we did a limited edition run of a thousand copies. They were all uh, hand numbered and it was actually the beginning of a program that we started at Sub Pop called the Sub Pop Singles Club where people could subscribe and get limited edition singles. It was the first record and I remember the day after it came out my friend Charles Peterson, the photographer, gave me a call and he said, you know, I had a party at my house last night and we threw Love Buzz on and people just kept playing it over and over and wow. over. I thought, and I thought, all right, that's a good sign. Maybe this, maybe these guys are going to blow up. And, and uh, well, of course, that, that they did. Uh, was there any talk like in the scene, like you talk about everybody kind of mm -hmm. hanging out? Was there any, uh, I don't know, more more bigger picture kind of talk like with some of these bands going, we're going to be huge. We're going to, you know. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it was interesting because, you know, I came from like an indie indie punk background. So it was very anti-major label. Mm -hmm. So so was Mark Arm. And so there was kind of a split in the scene when Green River broke up, Stone Gossard. And um, Jeff and Matt were kind of like, yeah, you know, we want to we want to go in a different direction. We want to get signed from a major. We want to get play stadiums. And that to me just seemed weird, you know, uh, just because of my cultural point of view. Yeah. So when Green River split up, you had Mud Honey, that uh, that was kind of truer to the the indie culture in the indie spirit and. Jeff and Stone, who I respect a lot, I think they're great people. They just had a different vision, uh, one that I couldn't relate to, but they did go on to a lot of uh, success. Uh, so there, there was kind of a split there for sure. 
Um, kind of an oddball question. I just uh, this stuck out during my research. Was it, is it true that your the original location of Sub Pop was on an eleventh floor, and the elevator actually stopped at the tenth? That is correct. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. And I will tell you this: uh, at one point, at one point, we were selling so many records that the UPS driver. Was I was like, just going to ask about UPS. He <laughs> was like, "You guys are killing me." You, you got to bring it down to the 10th me. floor. We had to bring it down to the 10th floor. That's very acute observation because that actually did happen. and was kind of a big deal. So we started <laughs> lugging things down near the elevator. I'm not kidding. That was the first thing I thought. I was like, well, you guys are clearly <laughs> shipping a lot of product. You yeah. know, expect the more busier you got even. I mean, they're, yeah. I don't know, we, man. We, Taking we, a two-wheeler. We <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, this is a true story. I'll tell you a true anecdote. This is uh, probably you know, fall of, of 88, we'd had the uh, office open for about six months and we were selling a lot of stuff. UPS guy literally almost started crying. And I thought, <laughs> you know, we ha- we have hardly any money in the bank. And I think literally on that day, we had like 150 bucks in the bank, seriously. And we're like, we have to go buy a hand truck. And we're like, okay, let's go out, let's go out and get one. We're heading towards Sears uh, Roebuck down in South Seattle, and we looked out the window, and there was a, a store that specialized in nothing but hand trucks, and it just seemed like something like out of a David Lynch film. That that's all they would sell. We nice. went in there. The hand truck was 125 bucks. <laughs> I bought it, and that was like our first gear investment was buying a hand truck so we could wheel the shit down. Nice. <laughs> and you're better friends with your UPS driver from that point on. Absolutely. Uh, he put you on his Christmas card list. Uh, That's right. <laughs> well, I, speaking of not having a lot of money, the, the the story of Bleach almost not getting financed, I think, is amazing. Do you want to share that? Well, I know it's been told a lot, but. Well, it is a ridiculous story. You know, when the world, the soon-to-be world's biggest band, which we did not fully realize at the time, they're like, we got to get in the studio. We got to get in the studio. And Kurt calls me up. He says, we got to get in the reciprocal. We're tired of waiting. And I said, I'll be honest with you. We're just, we don't have any cash. And I said, do you think, do you think you could front the money for the recording? In other words, can you loan me the money yeah. so I can give it back to you? And he, he basically hung up on me. Uh, but they did go in the studio and it was financed by uh, Jason Everman, uh, who didn't actually play on the recording. I think what happened was they went in, the bill was owed and Jason Everman wound up paying it, even though he wasn't on the recording, but that $608 recording translated into 2 million sales. So it kind of is a a profound lesson there as, as far as understanding that if you create something that's really cool, you don't have to spend a lot of money. Well, and I assumed I, did, did when they went to Geffen was there there had to be some kind of um, buyout with you guys or, or were they not under any contract? There was uh, a very famous contract. They were literally the only band on our label that was signed because they insisted that they get a contract. We xeroxed one from a book in a library and used a little whiteout, changed a few things around. They signed the contract, and because they signed this contract that they insisted on having, 
we wound up getting points on a number of different records and uh we wound up owning bleach and so forth so i don't know it kind of worked out for everybody <laughs> it definitely worked out so who else was on the label time were you dealing with mud honey and Soundgarden too is this before i mean none, sure, of, those, set, none of those acts well, had had uh contracts nope in fact Soundgarden. We, you know, we did Screaming Life. They went on to SST, and then they went on to A and M. There was no contract, and we went back and forth with management for literally ten years. So to to t- dial in what the agreement actually was, because at the time it was just a handshake agreement. With Mud Honey, was a handshake agreement. In the in the eighties, the classic indie deal was: we'll put out your record. When it starts to make money, we'll split the money with you. And that was just the way things were done. Nobody wanted to spend money on attorneys and contracts because we didn't have the cash. We just wanted to manufacture the records and get them out. But uh, certainly as things evolved, uh, we did start having contracts. But Nirvana was the first one where we actually had a physical contract. Right on. Well, that was a well. That was a very serendipitous move, I guess. Um, it wasn't. It was indeed. And if it wasn't for that that contract, I wouldn't be sitting here in my deck, staring at these beautiful uh, blue skies here on Orcas Island. Right on. <laughs> um, hey, maybe you can clear something up for me that I was thinking about. Uh, I, I, when I was doing the Ultra Mega OK episode. Um, uh, my copies on both CD and vinyl are SST, but the reissue from 2017 that Jack and Dino remixed and and produced, as far as I understand it, is on Sub Pop. How did that? I, mean, I just I couldn't find anything that that tied that transition. Do you, do you know what happened there? I, frankly, I don't know the details. And as I mentioned before, I kind of exited the company in the late 90s. Sure, uh, but the deal makes sense. I know SST kind of fell apart a while ago. And uh, Sub Pop's still around. So I don't know what shenanigans happened at Sub Pop, but uh, it does make sense that they would do a project like that. No, it was well done, too. I was, uh, I, I never, that was my least favorite Soundgarden record, largely because of the way it sounded. I can't believe how much better it popped after uh, Jack's totally. work on Good it. Totally. Good point. Well, Jack's a genius. I love that guy. Um, <laughs> you know, he was a, a really cool dude to talk to, for what it's worth. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Where would you say Sub Pop's peak was, and maybe what do you think their lowest was? <laughs> it peaked when I put out my first zine in 1980 and was downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, all, it's, it's all a matter of perspective. You Look at say, your deck. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it's all a matter of perspective, but, you know, historically speaking, uh, most people would say the classic early years of late 80s, early 90s, oh my God, what happened in Seattle? Some pop was instrumental in making that happen. Of course, a lot of the bands went on to majors and the whole thing kind of steamrolled, but the label's always going to be associated with that era. However, there have been a number of peaks and valleys. Certainly, you know, in 2004, Sub Pop put out a record by a group called the Postal Service that sold a million copies, hmm. you know. Uh, Band of Horses, uh, you know, Fleet Foxes, The Shins. They did a lot of great records. I would say there was a, a, a real buzz there from like 2003 to 2008 was kind of a second peak where records are selling half a million to a million copies. Um, 
and now we're in an era where uh, it's just this is a strange time, man. It's a strange time. It's an era yeah. of streaming, and um, the pop charts are just very homogenized. Occasionally, something will happen where people go, "Oh, that's kind of interesting," you know. But when you think back of the early '90s, where bam, 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 things were just blowing up out of Seattle, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a it was a moment that I don't think society has re-experienced since then. I would agree. I, I would almost think that there is uh, there aren't many other comparisons to it in general, and there, I definitely don't think there's been anything like it since. Um, I mean, the the internet has kind of broadened things out, so that's almost its own scene where people can work together from yeah, around yeah. the world. But sure, man, it just yeah. And the the, the one thing that um, as a guy who you know grew up in Minnesota, went to college here, and all that stuff, it was huge at the time, and and the change was very overnight i mean it, it with within a few months of of uh teen spirit breaking it seemed like suddenly you know pearl jam is is everywhere and soundgarden's records which i believe was yeah. out before that was suddenly picking up steam and even alice in chains and those big four acts kind of pulled a lot of other bands behind them so it was very quick 100 percent. it was it was an amazing time i have just you know, anecdotes I can throw out. I remember I was in uh, Barcelona, Spain, hooking up with, uh, meeting up with this group called the Super Suckers who were on tour. And I remember we went out bar hopping in Barcelona in 1994, and every bar we went into was playing music from Seattle. This is in 94, so it was still, a, you know, a very strong international mm-hmm. phenomenon. And to be halfway around the world uh, hearing that, it was a, it was a this is a this is a powerful reflection for me just to see how it impacted global culture. I think it helped even shit like Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've never heard anybody say that, but yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> just, <laughs> how about the other angle? Because I personally know people uh, from uh, from just my little uh, clique that were like heading to Seattle, like it was L.A. in the '80s. You know what I mean? And, oh, and, totally, man. and you kind of roll your eyes because it's like, you know, because, th- you know, they, they don't have a sudden rebirth. They just are kind of following the, the, the cash machine. But when, when that started happening, it, you know, it had to just be a flood of just, for lack of a better term, let's just call them posers. I think I'm a little too old to throw that term around is all I mean. But you know what I mean? People who are just kind of like really chasing the money and, and not really giving a fuck about the scene, if that makes sense. Well, yes. And also... Uh, simultaneously, you had a lot of creative people who were like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna put on my Doc Martin, Doc Martens, pack up my my car, and go live in Seattle." And it brought in a lot of creative people, and a lot of people are just hungering for for a, a vital community that they they could party in, you know. And I think it attracted a lot of interesting people as well as posers. But there was, <laughs> there were a lot of people just packed up their car and moved to Seattle. We saw that a lot. Uh, I remember Ian McKay from Fugazi stopped by the office and he said, you know, I, this is uh, like 93, 94. And he said, you know, I was walking down Broadway and I'll never forget. He said this, he goes, I saw a lot of Doc Martens. And he goes, <laughs> that, he said, that's you guys. You guys did that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm I'm just going to take that as a compliment, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, growing up in Minnesota, we had flannel and long underwear, and depending on how you know much money you had, ripped jeans were pretty common too. It was it was <laughs> totally. the first music scene that the, the fact I already I just had to go into my closet to dress cool. So oh, absolutely. Well, well, you know, when I was doing my zine, uh, I I had to say I have to say that I was I was uh, zeroing in on Minneapolis and reviewing all the Who's Who Do records and certainly nice. the repla- certainly the replacements. Those guys are rocking the flannel before anybody. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, those bands are, are near and dear to my house. How are my heart? Sorry, they don't live near me. Uh, well, they might, I guess. <laughs> um, but I, I, I also kind of like solo asylum. They they were a little poppier, but they kind of got pulled oh, totally. up, pulled along once once grunge blew up. Oh um, yeah, yeah, they're great. What do you think about the term grunge now? And maybe what did you think about it like '92? Well, you gotta you gotta remember, I'm the guy who wrote the ad copy for the Green River record, right? So Ultimately you and you were the you the you coined the phrase. I coined the phrase as far as uh, y- using it as a marketing term. Certainly, I didn't invent the word grunge, but I used it as ad copy. And when I did, the word grunge was all in caps. And a year a year later, a British uh, journalist. Came from uh, Melody Maker came to Seattle, was blown away by the scene, and he just kind of took that word and, and ran with it. So it be- got a lot more international usage. Uh, so I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, hey, I coined the phrase, dude. So I, I appreciate the fact that it's still kicking around and uh, it, it kind of works. It's stuck around for a long time. And I know people in Seattle were like, how how dare you unify all these groups? <laughs> We're all unique individuals. But when people hear the word grunge, they know what it means. It's like there was a vibe. There was, you know, yeah. your, your pants had holes in them. You, you had a thrift store hat. You had a pawn shop guitar. Your guitar sounded really distorted for the most part. So there's a whole culture that comes into focus immediately when you say it. So it it works, and it's going to be around for a long time. I'm sure back back in the day, impressionist painters were like, "Don't call me an impressionist. I'm my own. I'm I'm my own style." Like, well, <laughs> tell that to the museum curator a hundred years later. You know, like we're trying to sell tickets here, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're in the impressionist exhibit. Deal with it. You know. Um. Oh uh, well, we, you know. Of course, it got it. It did get ridiculous. Where like pennies had their grunge section in their catalogs and fashion. Yes. Fashion show models yes. were doing it. Oh, and- oh, oh, it got so ridiculous. But it was all always kind of an in joke as well. So the absurdity of that to me uh, was just part of the story. I do remember the grunge pencil collection, and I have ads <laughs> from like Sears Roebuck where you could get your grunge clothes, and yeah. I archived that stuff. And it was so ridiculous uh, that you have to embrace it as part of the story. I am with you. So I loved it. Uh, yeah, I would I too. I loved every second of it. It was not. Yeah. It's like the crazier and weirder it got, the more entertained I was. So I'm all about it. If I was even a bit player in that scene, I would I would, I would, would take a little as a badge of honor, especially now. <laughs> it's like, look at what the, all totally. we did. We were just doing and being ourselves, and now you guys are marketing it. I don't know. I don't yep. know. It seemed like, for some reason, I remember even McDonald's commercials somehow getting into it. I don't know. The whole thing is just a mess. Well, there was uh, there was an AT&T commercial, I remember, in particular. Any, well, is there any particular uh, uh, mass-marketed version of grunge that you weren't involved in that you liked the best? 
Well, 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 I do remember uh, on the David Letterman show, there was a character called uh, Larry Bud Melman, I think was his name. Yeah. You remember that guy? Yeah, I do. So he he was on the phone, uh, a pay phone, and he was chatting it up and then he turned around and he's wearing one of these ski caps and a flannel. And he said something about grunge. And it was just this commercial was everywhere. Hey, Slick, you could have spoken for a lot less by dialing 1-800-CLECT. Even to Seattle? Thanks, phone dude. And of course, Letterman Letterman was a cult show and Larry, Larry Bud Melman was a cult figure. And so he lent a certain ironic hips, hipster vibe to the AT&T commercial, which was the whole point. And you just had to laugh. Uh, also... Weird Al Yankovic doing the cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit. What is this song all about? Can't figure any lyrics out. How do the words to it go? I wish you'd tell me I don't know. was a milestone i think when that came out people were like all right shit is really blowing up if weird al yankovic is in the mix you know too bad coolio didn't have uh that same uh, <laughs> opinion about that uh, he, that's right he got a little butthurt over that but. <laughs> well uh, on the list that i'm breaking down of course you know sub pops all over it um uh let's uh if it's all right i'd like to ask you you know just your thoughts and memories or anything any anecdotes you want to share about some of these records here let's uh start it off with mud honey with their album uh uh did i get it right super fuzz big muff or is it big muff super fuzz i, I wrote it down by memory uh, it's, it's right on super super fuzz big muff boom and I, I i love that record i think it really holds up uh jack and dino did an amazing job now it came out back in the vinyl days Mm-hmm. One of the things we did at Sub Pop that was a little different is a lot of our early records were EPs. So there would be like two songs on one side, three songs on the other. And in the, that 12-inch EP format, the records sounded a lot better because the grooves were wider. Sure. So we were very conscious about doing these e- EPs, Screaming Life Again, and put on. It just sounded better than an album, better than a seven-inch single. So the fidelity was just crushing. And that record just sounded, it was such, a, like, represented such a rebirth of rock and roll. It was it was very raw, but it sounded full. There It was somewhat spontaneous. Uh, it was on the British charts for a year, the British indie charts for a year, which was unheard of because the British indie charts basically just had British music. Okay. So to think that this, that this recording that, you know, I'm sure was less than a thousand bucks, probably like $500 recording staying on the charts for a year. It was a big deal. And I do think that record really holds up. It's been reissued on CD with, you know, bonus tracks like touch me. I'm sick and so forth. But I, I think it's, it's really the first 
extended play that we put out on Sub Pop that that kind of blew up internationally and got some international recognition. So you, you spent a lot of time talking about the record. Uh, how versed are you in vinyl mastering? Because there's there's a bit of an art there. There there is. I'm not super well versed, but uh, you did, it was I something you guys focused on, though. It sounds like tended to work with. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You I'm know, sorry. We, we we're yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so the beauty of something like Superfuzz was like it was recorded by Jack a reciprocal. Uh, he would were record on two inch tape, which sounded better. So even though the recordings were pretty cheap and they were just banged out, it was great. And the the bands would record live in the studio, so you'd get this live sound, but it would sound full because of the two inch tape. Then you'd put it on an EP, so the grooves were fat, and you make sure the mastering was good. And punk rock, rock and roll, rock, whatever, whatever kind of rock you like, it's got to sound full. You know, yeah. it's got to be punchy. Otherwise, it's otherwise it sucks. Uh, another record uh, was Nirvana Bleach. We touched on it a little bit. Um, outside of the cost of the recording that stuff, were you involved in anything going on in the studio with them? Uh, I was not, but I will tell you that I was instrumental in uh, sequencing the record. Ooh. Uh, Kurt had it. Yeah. And Kurt, I think, whined, I'm going to just say whined about that a little later because I rejected his sequencing, <laughs> and uh, and this is what this is my philosophy about a label. A good label, a good label, doesn't give an artist 100% creative control. And typically, you hear, oh, corporate labels, they're going to control the artist. Well, the, to me, the healthiest dynamic is when the artist and the label have a have a dialogue and figure out the coolest way to do stuff. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons Sub Pop was really happening at that time is because we had an idea of, of what would work too and there was kind of a dialogue so what i'm leading up to is uh kurt wanted to bury two of the strongest tracks on the album and i said dude you, you got you should open this up with blue and hit him with about a girl like track three i've been a record reviewer for years and i will tell you if i get an indie record in the mail and i'm going to track three track four and it's not grabbing me there's a good chance i'll just toss it to the side and and go to the next record and that's just the way it works you know and if you're if you're rem people are gonna listen to the whole thing but if you're not you gotta like grab them from the beginning and by 10 minutes into it you gotta knock it out of the park so i really think that this that putting blue at number one and about a girl at number vice uh, but I, I think Kurt retrospectively was like, these guys are telling me what to do. Like, yeah, <laughs> we, ac- I actually know what I'm talking about and you don't because you're 20 years old and you don't know shit. Okay. So we're going to have this little conversation as much as I love Kurt. It's like, um, <clears throat> you, you want to share your, your experience with the artist and that's okay. 100% agree with you, especially for new artists. I mean, I've done my share of record reviews too, and you gotta, it, it, people don't know who you are. You gotta grab them quick, otherwise, they're not gonna get to your gem at the end of it. But, uh, 100%. Yeah. So, uh, I was involved with that. And, you know, Lisa Orth, the designer, she was like, What kind of uh, t- font should we work with? And she came up with that crazy Nirvana 
Sarah Fontes now has been basically their logo. And she just busted that out. And one of the things I love about Bleach, again, I was I was the art director there, so I, I worked with designers and stuff. We we're trying to create a vibe. And I love the fact that you pick up this record, and you're like, okay, these are these dudes are rockers. Obviously, there's a picture of them rocking out, but who the fuck has this like super gay serif font nirvana? And you flip it over, <laughs> and there's titles like Floyd the Barber, like Mr. Mustache. What the fuck is this? And this is what we wanted to do was like, I hated the fact that, you know, you go to so many genres of rock and it's just very predictable. Here's the font you use, here's the look you use, here's the song titles. And we, even though we had a vibe at some pop, we wanted to fuck with people's preconceptions of what hard rock or underground rock sounded or looked like. And it was just kind of a head scratcher when you, when you picked it up. And these days everything's streaming so the visuals aren't as important, but back in the day, the album art was was really crucial. Yeah. And I think anybody picking that up would just go, Mr. Mustache, what the fuck is this? I'm gonna I'm <laughs> gonna check this out. The world is a much more sarcastic place since nineteen ninety two. I would agree. <laughs> and that's definitely the, the, the grunge ethos. Yes. I uh, agree. What about uh, Green River Dry as a Bone? Uh, we all know what Green River would kind of sort of be, go on to become with them starting uh, Mother Love Bone and then uh, the situation with Andrew happening and then starting Pearl Jam. And But uh, this was uh, before all that. It was before all that. Um, you know, they had released an album prior in 1985 on Homestead called Come On Down, which I think is really great. Uh the band just killed it live. They were, to me, like, by 1986, they were the band you would check out live. And Mark Arm was a tremendous frontman, really funny. You never knew what they were going to do. They had all sorts of weird pranks they would pull out on stage. I'm, I'm kind of ripping here, but, like, I remember one show they did at the Central Tavern where they pulled an ice chest on stage and they it was filled with green jello and they started throwing it at the crowd. And, you know, in re- retrospect, that's kind of a ridiculously juvenile thing to do. But you never knew what crazy shit was going to go down at those shows. So I was super stoked about the group. Uh, I, I thought the record came out really well. And uh, another Jeff EP. Met, yeah, Jeff Ament was really involved with with uh, the graphics. Uh, I appreciated his his eye. Charles Peterson took this amazing photo of Mark on the back, uh, as well as the band on the front. So it was it was pretty much the launch of Sub Pop as a label focusing on Seattle, and it came out in June of '87. And it was also just from a Sub Pop biz point of view, it was a moment where uh, myself and John Poneman, uh, who's my business partner, kind of joined forces as he booked the, the record release party for the record. And it was the first time we really worked together. Uh, we then continued to join forces and he joined up for the Soundgarden record. So it's just a time of coalescence, you know? So to me, yeah. the record really represents a time when a lot of the community came together. Charles Peterson, the band, me, John, 
uh, and it's, people pick the, up this record with with again. You look at the graphics, and you have uh, the, just the layout, the look of it did not look like anything else that was going on at the time. Absolutely. Um, well, are you, you mentioned uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Poneman as as your business partner. Is that still? Do you have? Do you? Well, let me just skip to that. Do you have any involvement in uh, Sub Pop any longer at all? Well, it's interesting you should say that because uh, <laughs> <Nice>. we, <laughs> we've 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 gone in and out of stuff. But literally two days ago, John and I did a three and a half hour interview for NPR, which is going to get whittled down to an hour and. And so over the past month or so, we've been we've been talking more. And we as of a few days ago, good timing, we've decided on doing some collaborations, which I can't really talk about right now. But I'm kind of getting back into um, what's going on there, but in kind of an indirect way where John and I are just talking and doing some brainstorming. All right. Well, cool. Uh, Well, when can we look for an announcement of what you're talking about? Well, uh, I would say sometime this year. Uh, I've been working on a side project, and and I think we're going to try and bring some ideas together. So the the headline is Bruce and John are talking, and maybe some crazy shit's going to go down. So fair enough. Um, you, B- uh, buckle up. As I'm talking to you, though, of course, we're all locked in under this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, it sounds like you have a pretty good setup. You're uh, just writing it out. Yes, yes. I'm on a remote island uh, surrounded by trees, so um, I can tell you I'm pretty damn healthy right now. Nice. And uh, but it, it's it, it's it's kind of an interesting situation where I, I've lived a, a life of kind of a you know I, I moved here 20 years ago, raised some kids, and I moved out of the city, and I'm living in a rural environment. And there's a lot of uh, like social distancing was fashionable here like 20 years ago. So <laughs> I'm ahead of the curve again. Well, uh, there there are a few other bands uh, that you definitely worked with on Sub Pop, but their their records aren't in the 25. Like Screaming Trees, L7, and Soundgarden. We've talked a little bit on Soundgarden. Is there any memories of any of those? Any stories from any of those artists that you like to share? Well, uh, you know, T- Tad is on that list. A great fan. Well, you know, this is this is a, a very surreal part of the whole grunge story. And I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, but a lot of the musicians, I very, very ironically, were working with me at the Muzak Corporation in Seattle. Okay, that's the Elevator of, Music Company? The, yes. Yes. Mark Arm worked there. Tad Doyle worked there. <laughs> I worked there. This is true. This is a true anecdote. Nice. I hadn't heard this. It, yes. And in fact, it was such a weird angle that Spin flew out and wrote a big story about how the fuck did that happen? You know? <laughs> so <clears throat> we would go in the break room. Now I know where just, the Seattle snark comes from. Yes, absolutely. Just layers of irony and just the, everything's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway. But M- Muzak had, uh, they paid well and had health insurance and it was a, it was a day job. So we're talking uh, 86, Sounds like Canada. 87. Yeah, 86, 87, 88. A lot of these folks were working there. And Tad came in with a demo uh, of a song called Daisy and he played all the instruments on it. I was like, I was blown away. I thought it was really awesome. So one of the very first Sub Pop singles was a Tad single of him playing on all the instruments. And it, it was so well received. We kind of 
collaborated and helped bring in some other musicians and they actually formed a band and you know wound up touring with Nirvana and Mudhoney and so forth. So they came out of music. Also, tangentially, I'll say that the first time I heard Touch Me, I'm Sick was when Mark brought it into music. And the first time I heard Nirvana was when uh, John had passed me the uh, infamous demo tape that Jack and Dino had and Mark and I sat around listening to Nirvana. So a lot of that, uh, a lot of the, the, the early, the early seeds of, of the label and the scene happened in the break room at the elevator music company. Music company. <laughs> and Mark Arm actually worked at Sub Pop for a bit. Do I have that right? Yes, he's working there now. He's been uh, for the past, I think, fifteen years. Okay. He's been managing the warehouse there. So you know, it's a smart gig. He's got this day gig, day gig where he's uh, shipping out records to stores and fans, and then he, he'll go out on tour and. Yeah. I go go over to Europe or fly to Tokyo or something. So it's it's kind of a smart gig. So if uh if a youngster walked up to you today and said, "What's grunge?" Is there one record you'd give them? Probably Superfuzz Big Muff. Okay. Um, and is there a favorite record that that uh, you were I don't know that you oversaw? Let's say that at Sub Pop. Wow. Um, if you want to list a bunch, I don't care. <laughs> well it's 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 hard to pick favorites you know i have two kids and somebody said hey which one of your two kids do you like the most you're like I'd steve like i'd be like <laughs> no no comment uh but i will say that uh for the label uh i think this is a historically important record we put out a compilation record in late 88, like December 88, right before Christmas, called Sub Pop 200. It had 20 bands on it, including Nirvana, Mudhoney, Soundgarden, The Fluid. A lot of these groups that are on that list were all on this compilation. That came out in 1988. And then I will say a month later, it was getting played by John Peel, who was the BBC One radio DJ, who was... Ooh potentially the most influential t- tastemaker in the world at that time. He played the record. He did an epic review in the London Observer in which he stated that Sub Pop had the most distinctive regional sound since Tamla Motown, which was a huge endorsement. And that really kind of led to a lot of the British press getting behind us. So I would say the compilation Sub Pop 200 uh, if I had to break it down, you, you know, to ground zero, that that it would probably be that record. Do you still own any like early uh, first editions of uh, vinyl that you, you guys pressed? I do have some, but I'll be honest with you. I there was a time when when uh, when I did sell some of that on eBay because it was very exciting to get paid tons of money for old <laughs> records that I had kicking around. <laughs> It is a good feeling. <laughs> I got a feeling that you were able to uh, draw in more than it's stuff from my personal collection, but uh, the first time someone gave me $100 for a record I bought for 8 bucks is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a rush. And then you're just like, fuck it, I'll sell everything. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just sold that. The purge begins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
All right. One question I'm asking everybody that I'm talking to uh, from uh, someone like you who is part of the scene or, or a guest on one of the episodes is that, uh, well, not surprisingly, I think if you look at it objectively, that Nirvana's Nevermind comes in number one on Rolling Stone's list here. Um, yep. Regardless of, of personal taste, I, I think we can all accept that if you're looking at it, you know, like I, like I said, objectively, it, it, it belongs there. I agree. Do you recall, like, what were your first, well, let's just put it this way. What were your first thoughts when you heard the record? Did you get to hear it before it came out? Um, yes, I did. Okay, I did. so so what did you think when you, you got a chance to hear it? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, John and I were at the uh, off-ramp, one of the small clubs in Seattle, and this is probably a month before the record came out, and the, the A&R rep from Geffen, her name was Susie Tennant, she came up and she said, I have a cassette of the new Nirvana album. She said, awesome. So we stepped outside. We went into her car and popped it in and listened to the whole thing. And immediately, Poneman and I were looking at each other like, this is going to be so fucking huge. There was like no doubt in our <laughs> mind. We were right completely on. blown away. No doubt that it was going to blow up. And then, you know, a month or two later, I'm over at Mark Arm's house and we're watching MTV and Smells Like Teen Spirit is on heavy rotation and we're looking at each other like, can you believe this? And it, it did, it worked, it made sense, but it was still, it, it, it blew up so quickly that uh, even though we knew it was an amazing record, it was almost too good to be true that it was blowing up like that. And uh, I asked Jack this. I'm curious what you think. How um, how important would would you say Dave Grohl as a drummer was to their the success the the success of that record? I, absolutely instrumental. Huge difference. Uh, I would say Dave Grohl, but also Butch Vig, the producer. Okay. It was essentially recorded in Madison and Butch's studio, and then they went to L.A. and did a, some some remixing and you know i'm I'm a little fuzzy on the whole process (laughs) but well um, well, at that point they weren't your band right they're on geffen uh, yeah 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 but you know fyi we did send nirvana to butch vig to record that album because it was supposed to be on sub pop and they recorded that album with butch vig but then they used that demo or that tape to shop around and get a major label deal so uh eh, you know the the version they came up with uh, with the Geffen budget was significantly more awesome, <laughs> but we did make the we did make the Butch Vig intro and uh, you know so I, I do feel that we had we participated in the creative process. We also introduced the band of the photographer Michael Levine, who did the cover photo and so forth. So we we, we nudged him along there. How about your legacy? You, you have to feel good about the role you played in, and frankly, I mean, without trying to overstate it, I mean, in many ways, uh, the, the whole Seattle grunge scene changed the world, and uh, you're a very instrumental part of that. That that has to be something you at least, I don't know, maybe you're not a nostalgic person like myself, but you know, I would feel pretty pretty happy about that. Yeah, I, I I'm honored to have participated in that, and you know, I'll. I'll go down to Seattle every once in a while and see Nirvana and Sub Pop t-shirts pretty much every time I go there. <laughs> and now I'm I'm at the point where like I rem- I'll just step up to people and start a conversation like I bumped into this one young gentleman who was wearing a Nirvana t-shirt and I said, "Hey, so you're a Nirvana fan, right?" And he looks at me and he goes, 
yeah. He goes, they're, they're a band, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, boy. they're a band. <laughs> or <clears throat> I mentioned the other day to somebody, yeah, I'm a founder of Sub Pop. And he goes, oh, Sub Pop, you mean like the hat? So at this point in time, the Sub Pop logo and the Nirvana logo are so ubiquitous that people don't even know that it's related to music. It's just, it's, but it's just out there. So that's, that's kind of a weird fractal where, where uh, it's become part of the culture, but people, they have no idea what the roots are. So I appreciate shows like yours because it's, it's reminding people that something actually did happen back then. It's more than just a t-shirt. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Look, there's, you know, when people who care about music are basically their lives are just one long eye roll when it comes to certain things, you know, uh, it's just like, fuck, you know, you see a, a, a reality TV star in a, in a Slayer t-shirt and they're, you know, they have no idea what they're doing. So yeah, exactly. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. You gave me quite a bit of it. I really do appreciate it. And this is great stuff. Um, all the best. Uh, you know, my sister lives out in Seattle, so I'm going to head out there at some point. But uh, it sounds like beautiful country. I'm just uh, looking forward to get kind of checking out the whole scene there and stuff like that. I've never been, but uh, um, pretty damn uh, sweet. You you want bring, be sure to bring your Doc Martens. I <laughs> I'll have to bust out the credit card to get a pair. That was the one part of the grunge outfit that was like too expensive. You know what I mean? Those were never yeah. cheap. You yeah, know? totally. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know what you mean, man. But you have a great day. It was fun. Thanks you so too. Much, All right. Care. Take care. Bye-bye.
sir. How are you? I am well. I'm talking to Bruce. You are indeed, and your name is pronounced, your nickname is pronounced Baco, is that correct? <laughs> Baco is the pronunciation, but... Uh... Right on. (laughs) You can say it however you want it. It's all right. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 